Welcome back to a special post-New Hampshire primary episode of The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections. It says here I'm supposed to say in Massachusetts, but today we'll add New Hampshire. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Stephanie Murray, joining the pod from a parking lot in Bedford, New Hampshire. <laughs> a parking lot? What, did you find your car, by the way? I saw on Twitter yesterday that you were wandering around Dixville Notch or Hart's location or something, wondering where you'd parked. Are you somewhere safe and secure, or are you you know, huddled somewhere, run out of gas that we need to send help for you. I'm safe now, but I was wandering around on black ice for like 20 minutes last night. Um, I ran into Amy Klobuchar's election night party and I did what I always do, which is park in a panic and then just pay no attention to where I left my car. And then a few hours later, I have no idea where it was. But, <laughs> you know, I uh, I persevered. I looked around. I found my car and I made it back to my hotel at like 1 a.m. Well, we're glad that you're uh, safe and in one piece. Um, I was on WBUR last night, so when I got out, I saw that you were, you know, wandering around somewhere, but glad to hear you're safe. Um, and we're going to be talking for most of the beginning of the show all about the results of New Hampshire. And then a little bit later on, we're going to get to an interview with Eugenia Gibbons, Policy Director for the Green Energy Consumers Alliance, where we're going to explore in more depth what net zero is about. Uh, we talked a lot about that last week with um, Senate President Karen Spilka and Senator Mike Barrett. So go back and listen to that one too if you want more on that. Um, but most of what we have to talk about this week is the incredible primary that we just saw last night in New Hampshire. Um, Stephanie, you've basically been living up there for the last at least week, but even before that really. So tell us what you saw last night. What did it look like being in some of those rooms? So first of all, I just have to say that I'm very heartbroken that the New Hampshire primary is finally over. I've been coming up here for more than a year, and it's just been so much fun uh, to cover all of these candidates and everything like that. So I am sad it's over. I have separation anxiety from the New Hampshire primary. But <laughs> How bad is it? I mean, are you like driving around <laughs> listening to REM or something? or like Fleetwood Mac that? for the most part. <laughs> 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 but on a serious note... With all of the kind of information vacuum that we had in Iowa as we waited for days and days for them to count the results, there was really no clear winner. There was no clear answers on what caucus goers thought about these candidates. Uh, New Hampshire was much more decisive, which is what we were kind of hoping for here in the state. So uh, Bernie Sanders was able to kind of hold on to New Hampshire after he won here in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. The pressure was really on him to perform well since New Hampshire was kind of the first state where people looked at him and said, you know, this is actually a serious candidate. So he was able to win. But Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is hot on his heels. They were only separated by a couple of points. Yeah, and then you said you were actually in the room for the Amy Klobuchar event. And, of course, she, I think, was the big shocker um, in terms of just the last few days. Her polling basically went vertical. You know, she went from maybe high single digits and ended up around 20 percent. What was the room like with her support full of her supporters as votes were being counted? You know, this this new uh, bit of momentum for Klobuchar is so new that we haven't really settled on whether we're calling it Clomentum or a Klobuchar yet. So I think... <laughs> Klobuchar, I've also heard. But, you know, the mood in her party was really excited. Uh, they didn't expect the number of reporters who were there to show up. So when I got there, there were all of these reporters who were kind of milling around looking for a place to sit. Her advance staff had to bring in extra tables and outlets for everybody. That's how crowded it was. There were a couple hundred people and everyone was just so excited. They were waving American flags. They were holding Klobuchar signs. And uh, New Hampshire Executive Counselor Deborah Pignatelli got up on stage before she 
introduced Amy and she called her our comeback kid, which of course is an homage to Bill Clinton, who came in second in New Hampshire in 1992, counted as a win, called himself the comeback kid. And we all know how that turned out. He ended up being the president. So the mood was definitely positive. Oh, and I should point out, Jackie Manning pointed this out to me. Deborah Pignatelli is actually related to Smitty Pignatelli in the statehouse. So always a Massachusetts connection. Always a Massachusetts connection. So in talking to Klobuchar's people then, um, where does where does her campaign go from here? I mean, she's got a she's got her work cut out for her in similar ways, I think, to what Mayor Pete has, which is, you know, her, she's shown herself to be able to do very well among two pretty white and pretty liberal states. Um, where does she see her path going from here? Or where do her staffers and campaign people see her path going from here? So I, uh, I caught up with one of her staffers at the election party last night and I said, oh, you know, how do you feel? And he just gave me a high five and then just pointed at his smile and walked away. So that was kind of the mood in there last night. People were just thrilled. But she really has her work cut out for her now. Klobuchar has less money than somebody like a Bernie Sanders or a Pete Buttigieg. And she's got to pivot and build out a big organization in Nevada and South Carolina so she can kind of capitalize on this momentum and continue to be competitive. And other candidates like Bernie Sanders and even Elizabeth Warren, who didn't do too well last night, have been organizing in Nevada for, I think, about a year now. So that's going to be the challenge for her. And then, of course, now that she's in the top three, you know, I picked up a copy of the Union Leader on the way out of my hotel this morning. And it was Sanders, Buttigieg and Klobuchar on the front page. That's exciting, but it also kind of puts a target on your back. Uh, So I think her prosecutor record is going to come under more scrutiny. Uh, She's going to be subject to attacks at the next debate in Nevada. So uh, big, big change for Klobuchar coming up. Yeah, I think we'll probably see some of that from both for both Klobuchar and Bloomberg, actually, who, although he didn't compete in New Hampshire, is also seeing his poll numbers really growing. Um, you know, you're, you're, you saw the video of him talking about stop, stop and frisk released yesterday. And I have to think that whatever there is on Klobuchar, uh, you know, the other campaigns will, will be dumping that um, into, into reporters' hands in the next in the next few days, just, see, you know, sort of seeing how well she's doing. Um, but let's turn to some of the other campaigns, because, of course, you write the Politico Massachusetts playbook, um, and there are three Massachusetts candidates campaigning yesterday. Uh, former Governor Deval Patrick, after finishing well in the back of the pack, announced today that he's out of the race. Um, but let's talk for a bit about Elizabeth Warren, who whose campaign, compared to where she was a few months ago in New Hampshire, can't be satisfied with where she ended up, which was just around 10 percent, um, close in range to where Joe Biden was both finishing out of the delegates. Um, you had to get 15% to earn any delegates from New Hampshire. Uh, neither one of them got that. What are her people saying about what they need to do to get their campaign revved up again? It's really fascinating what happened to Elizabeth Warren. And if you look, if you think back to over the summer and even into the early fall, she was really viewed as the candidate to beat. I think what happened with her answer on health care, uh, saying she was with Bernie on Medicare for All, and then kind of walking that back a little bit, I think that hurt her. And coming out of Iowa, she was kind of lost in the shuffle. We were talking about Bernie and Buttigieg, who had both declared victory. We were talking about how poorly Joe Biden did and how surprising that was. And we were talking about Amy Klobuchar kind of surging up and punching above her weight. So where did that leave Elizabeth Warren? My eyes were on her to see if she could kind of turn it around in New Hampshire. And that wasn't the case, even with kind of this famed organization. She's got tons of organizers, tons of people in the field knocking doors and things like that. It wasn't enough to turn it around. And Warren did remarkably poorly in the towns that were on the New Hampshire border uh, between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. She actually did better on the towns that border Vermont. So all of that talk about 
home state candidates or neighboring state candidates, I should say, having an advantage. Um, that didn't really prove to be true this time around. Of course, it's it's worked in the past. John Kerry, Michael Dukakis, Paul Songas all performed well in New Hampshire. But for Warren, you know, the juice just wasn't there. Yeah, Warren, uh, Deval Patrick, of course, and Bill Weld, um, the other, rounding out the Massachusetts candidates, he finished uh, right around 10 percent, um, far, far behind uh, Donald Trump on the Republican side. Um, but looking for a minute at, at Warren, uh, I was looking at the exit polls last night trying to figure out where the charge or the Clobomentum or the Clomentum or whatever we're calling it had come from. And it seems like she was drawing votes away from both Biden and Warren, taking a significant share of voters over 65, which is a constituency that that Joe Biden had been counting on. She took a lot of college graduates, which, of course, Elizabeth Warren throughout this campaign has done much better among upper uh, among voters with more educational attainment. The same with upper income voters. Amy Klobuchar did well among upper income voters. Um, and then in terms of uh, one other group that Joe Biden had been counting on, the more moderate voters and voters who care more about Trump than about issues. On both of those, uh, Klobuchar also did quite well. So I think she she's part of the explanation for why Elizabeth Warren may not have done as well as as she once was. But I think she's also, you know, perhaps somewhat responsible for Joe Biden's uh, distant finish out of the out of the money, so to speak. That's a great point, Steve. And if I could just add, I think another thing that was difficult for Elizabeth Warren is that a number of the other candidates of the field kind of had pieces of her of her appeal. And what I mean by that is if you wanted to vote for somebody who was really on the progressive left, running on Medicare for all, running on uh, tuition-free college, you'd go to Bernie Sanders. If you were looking for somebody who was kind of that uh, liberal, educated, kind of Harvard-educated person with a, a unifying message, you might go to Pete Buttigieg. If you want to see a woman president, you might uh, check the box for Amy Klobuchar. So I think that was a tough thing for Elizabeth Warren because uh, the things that are appealing about her kind of bled into the other candidates as well. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And Anthony Brooks was was basically saying I think the metaphor he used was that she was getting that her support was being pinched from both sides, both sides in that sense where, you know, she had people taking votes from different parts of what had been her support. So, I'm um, very interesting and something to watch for sure. One other thing that stuck out to me was the much larger number who care about a candidate who can beat Donald Trump rather than someone who necessarily agrees with them on major issues. It was almost two to one, not quite two to one. Um, voters said that they cared more about a candidate that they thought they could win. Anecdotally, we heard a lot last night of um, voters who were considering Warren, but then ended up with Klobuchar or Buttigieg for that exact reason. They wanted, they might like Warren, they might like where she stands on issues and, and have other uh, reasons for supporting her. But that was something which a lot of this these voters, the half of voters who said they decided just in the last few days, anecdotally said that that was one of the things that made them switch. Interestingly, the among that large share, the 63% who said that they were looking for someone who could beat Donald Trump, Joe Biden didn't do very well. He only got 10% of those voters. Um, he's been basically running that sort of electability campaign for almost the, the entire cycle. So that, I think, outlines the question for him, which is where does he go from here? What, is, what does he take from this and how does he carry his campaign forward? You know, Steve, it makes me wonder if Joe Biden, uh, when he was leading early polling, if his name just wasn't sort of a stand-in for undecided for voters who were kind of supporting him but still shopping around. So 
Joe Biden, of course, uh, the big buzz after Friday night's debate was that his first, his opening line in the debate was that he did horrible in Iowa and he was expecting to do uh, horrible in New Hampshire as well. And uh, that prediction turned out to be correct. Uh, his campaign did not feel good about how they were going to do in New Hampshire. And so uh, did they stick around? No. He hit a few polling places and then he hopped on a plane and headed to South Carolina to hold an event there. Uh, his campaign's been saying, you know, only two states have voted. There are 48 more states to go. Uh, but it raises serious questions. And the, the support that he has in states like South Carolina, especially among black voters, they liked him because they felt like he was electable and he could beat Donald Trump and they felt like white voters were supporting him. But you're starting to see cracks in that. And so if there is a crack in his firewall in South Carolina, which it looks like there might be, that state is going to be totally up for grabs when they vote on February 29th. Yeah, and watching where that that vote goes, I think where the where the significant numbers of Black voters in South Carolina who may uh, not vote for Joe Biden now, or who may be looking around, where those votes go, and how the other candidates recast their candidacies or cast their candidacies to try to uh, try to do well in South Carolina will be something that I think uh, will tell us a lot about where this campaign is headed. If Joe Biden does manage to bounce back in South Carolina, if he can hold on to enough uh, enough support there that he d- finishes well in South Carolina, that's another thing which could scramble the race. So I'd agree with their their framing in one sense, which is only two states have voted and there's a really, really long way to go in this uh, and just no real, I think, clear sense of of how this is going to unfold. You know, it, it feels different a lot in a lot of ways than, than 2016 did where, you know, there was some up and down, but you kind of knew that Clinton had more support. You knew that Sanders would do well in certain places, but probably it was going to go to Clinton. And there, this this time, I, I have no idea, you know, no real, no real clue of how this is going to unfold. So fascinating to watch and uh, it will be really interesting to see how the next few states unfold. And if I could make one more point about Joe Biden before we move on, um, when he got on the ballot in New Hampshire in November, he said, you know, I plan on winning New Hampshire. But in the last week or two, his campaign has kind of walked that back. And he said, oh, well, how could you expect me to win New Hampshire when there are neighboring state candidates running in this race? Of course, somebody like an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders who live in states that border New Hampshire are going to do better than I will. But that point kind of completely dissolved last night when two of the top three candidates were Midwesterners, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. So to your point, Steve, I think all of the conventional wisdom and things that we might be able to expect have kind of been thrown out the window. This electorate is very volatile. It's chaotic. People are trying to figure out who can beat Donald Trump and voters aren't really tracking with what we could expect from cycles in the past. Yeah, I think it perhaps underscores the way that the race has been nationalized, that this contest has been nationalized, where there isn't really an advantage for bordering state governors or senators. You know, Midwesterners beat all of the bordering state candidates except for Bernie Sanders. And together, Klobuchar and uh, Buttigieg did better than all of the neighboring public officials put together. So uh, really, really interesting. Um, but speaking of border state public officials, uh, Deval Patrick, after he dropped out today, issued a statement criticizing the media's reaction to his campaign. Stephanie, I know you've been keeping an eye on that. What is going on there? So what uh, Governor Patrick said, so he issued a statement saying he was ending his campaign. Uh, The last I checked, he got around 0.4% of the vote in New Hampshire, uh, fewer than 2,000 votes. So a really tough night 
for him here. He got in the race uh, basically the last day he could have. He registered for the New Hampshire primary ballot, I think a day before the deadline. So it's been November to now that he's been running. And he's been really frustrated by the media framing of his campaign. Uh, His statement was pretty critical of reporters asking him, uh, since he got in the race late, how was he going to how was he going to be able to kind of gain the traction that he needed? And his stance was that he didn't get in late. He got in later than the other candidates. So make of that what you will. But uh, from my reporting, I've found that he did get left out by a number of uh, outlets, especially the New York Times. His campaign was frustrated that they interviewed him and they did the whole video for the editorial board episode that they aired on FX. And then they cut him and Tom Steyer out of it. When Kamala Harris dropped out of the race, the New York Times said that the only black candidate in the race remaining was Cory Booker, when of course Deval Patrick was running as well. Um, And there have been a few other instances where they kind of forgot that he was running, and they've been frustrated by that. And he's had trouble booking uh, slots on the Sunday TV shows. So while Pete Buttigieg was out there pulling a full Ginsburg, which is when you appear on all five Sunday shows in the same day, uh, Deval couldn't even get booked. He couldn't get booked on The Daily Show. He couldn't get booked on The View. And so he felt like that was a real hurdle for him and the media narrative according to the Patrick campaign in this statement kind of influenced voters who also were asking him you know how could you gain traction if you got in the race so late yeah it feels like I heard that question come from voters pretty frequently you know it wasn't just campaign reporters and so forth asking that question it was you know voters saying I wish you'd gotten in earlier I wish you'd had started earlier? Is it too late? And he had a good answer for that, which is that, you know, have you decided? Have you made up your mind? And if not, then I'm not too late for you. Um, But I think, uh, you know, just looking at the outcome and looking at the the, uh, way that New Hampshire unfolded, it wasn't like, you know, he was almost there, nothing like that. So I I don't think you can really blame the way that the media framed this race for for the entirety of, of what Deval Patrick experienced. Right. And especially as voters, especially this time around, as voters are so focused on electability and who can beat Trump, they're worried about who can beat Trump, that that lateness question, I think, was valid from them. So just one more note then before we leave our, our discussion of New Hampshire, and that's on turnout. So looking at the, the at turnout on each side, on the Republican side, there was a surprisingly robust turnout. We don't have all the votes counted yet, but we've already broken 150,000 votes on the Republican side, um, which is much, much higher than you typically see for uh, what was basically a re-election campaign and, and, you know, I'll say barely contested. Of course, we had Bill Weld in there. Uh, usually we're looking more in the 60 to 90,000 range for an incumbent re-election. So 150 really is is a show of strength and a show of loyalty, I think, that uh, Republican voters are excited to, to come out and vote for Donald Trump. Then looking at the Democratic side, there uh, we're looking at around 290,000 votes and probably a bit in excess of the previous record, which was uh, set in the Clinton and Obama election in 2008. But the reason that it's not necessarily hugely impressive is because there are more voters now than there were then. Um, that's actually one of the reasons. And the other is that in 2008, there were two primaries. Um, so independents in New Hampshire can vote in either one. And they, many of them in 2008 picked up a Republican ballot instead of a Democratic ballot. So those two factors together, I think, you know, it, it's not bad turnout for, for the Democrats. It's, it's good turnout, but it's not, it's not revolutionary turnout. It's not the kind of thing that Bernie Sanders has been talking about when he's saying, you know, we're going to, we need hugely high turnout to do what he feels like he needs to do. That's really interesting, Steve. And it makes me wonder if the Trump campaign is going to be able to kind of turn New Hampshire red 
Uh, they're viewing it as a swing state, which they've been saying for months. They've been saying they're going to turn it red. Uh, New Hampshire is a pretty purple state, a lot of uh, independent, unenrolled voters. And it certainly felt like the other night um, when Donald Trump held his big campaign rally in Manchester and a half hour up the street, Bernie Sanders held his big rally with AOC and the Strokes in Durham. It kind of felt like a crystal ball into the future where Donald Trump is holding this huge rally. Democrats are holding this huge rally right up the street. So there are a lot of fired up Republicans, even after Democrats spent a year campaigning here in New Hampshire. Yeah, and it was very close, of course. It came down to just a couple thousand votes in 2016. So I'd expect that it will be very heavily contested. Um, We in the Boston media market will be bombarded with advertisements (laughs) over the next number of months. As we always are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, not just for the primary, for the general. We'll just be, uh, I think, um, just prepare yourselves, brace yourselves, because it's coming. Um, anyway, so that concludes our very brief look at New Hampshire. But of course, uh, we mostly focus on Massachusetts and stuff is really about to heat up in Massachusetts. And I'm not even talking about Super Tuesday. Stephanie, there is a huge thing coming up here. Well, I don't know. Is it huge? I would say it's huge. And that's right, Steve. So even as I'm heartbroken that the New Hampshire primary has come and gone, uh, we have a Senate debate. So Senator Ed Markey and Congressman Joe Kennedy III will meet on the debate stage for the first time on the 18th. That's right. That's next Tuesday. So we'll actually have uh, a look back at that next Wednesday when we're when we're meeting here for the pod. Can't wait for that. And then March 3rd, of course, is the primary. We'll be taking a look at what to expect there. Massachusetts is one of the Super Tuesday states. Um, so lots to lots to look forward to there. We'll never sleep again. Last week in our climate-focused episode, we talked to State Senate President Karen Spilka and Senator Mike Barrett about the idea of net-zero carbon emissions by 2050, but we didn't really get into what that looks like or how we would get there. What does net-zero actually mean, and what steps do we need to take to meet that goal? To dig into that, I caught up with Eugenia Gibbons, Policy Director for the Green Energy Consumer Alliance. Take a listen. So I'm here with Eugenia Gibbons. Uh, and the first question that that I think we'd all like an answer to is what exactly is net zero? I mean, it sounds simple, the idea of getting to you know zero emissions, but that's not really what net zero is, is it? Uh, net zero refers to the practice of removing emissions from the atmosphere. So um, climate change is happening. It's real. Emissions are causing it. Uh, carbon emissions, uh, human activity is exacerbating it. And so we have to reduce those emissions as quickly as possible. The first way you do that is to try to eliminate the amount of emissions that you're putting into the air through your human activity. But then net zero is achieved when you um, allow for other other strategies to absorb the remaining carbon from the atmosphere to and get that, to the place where there's zero. So that means literally any carbon that's put into the atmosphere in Massachusetts would be reabsorbed? Or could you do, uh, we've heard about carbon offsets as potentially being something that could be used. Uh, what balance would we expect here in Massachusetts between reductions, uh, carbon offsets. Um, What does net zero actually look like here? So I think what's interesting is the governor did state in his state of the union, uh, uh, excuse me, state of the state address that uh, Massachusetts would be committed to achieving net zero by 2050. That is consistent with science. Science tells us if we're going to avoid the most catastrophic effects of climate change, we have to at least get there by 2050. 
Um, the first way that we, uh, and there is real concern that folks will just continue to pollute and emit carbon emissions, and then, as you say, offset those carbon emissions by finding other ways to remove the carbon from the atmosphere. The only way net zero is going to be really effective is if we do everything we can to exhaust energy efficiency, to change the way we heat and cool our buildings, to transform our transportation sector so that we're running on clean electricity, so that we deploy uh, renewable energy as quickly as possible. So if we're going to be electrifying, we need to make sure that we're powering everything with clean renewable electricity. And then the remaining amount of emissions that are coming from certain processes that may require some level of fossil fuel um, combustion or use, um, we'd need to look for a way to remove those emissions or offset them. So it would come from things like carbon sequestration from our forests. And I am not an expert on that, but Massachusetts and in the region does have a lot of forests. Trees have the ability to absorb carbon. So it's looking at ways to um, balance what little bit of emissions are still remaining uh, and the carbon absorption capabilities of, of some of our other natural resources. So how about for the individual consumer? What does this actually look like? Let's start with transportation because that's one of the sectors that you mentioned. Uh, how do we get there? How does the transportation sector look different if we've reached net zero in a couple of decades? That's a really good question. I think part of it is going to come from electrifying our transportation system where possible. So it's going to come in two ways. It's shifting modes of transportation and transit. So finding ways to invest in alternatives to driving, electrifying vehicles where it makes sense, electrifying personal cars, electrifying buses, school and transit buses, electrifying our transit system, investing in making places walkable, investing in ways to get people out of their personal vehicle and um, up move from place to place without having to drive a polluting car. Um, so that's one way that you would you would achieve that. It would it would be through um, cleaning up the sector. I'm a big proponent of setting realistic targets that, but also setting really stringent interim targets. So 2050 is very far in the future. We still have to hit 2030, 2040. We have to be set on a trajectory that actually gets us to 2050. Um, so we need really stringent interim targets. I think that it makes sense to look at targets by sector. So what contribution to our overall pollution is the transportation sector making? Is our electricity supply making? Are our buildings making? And then figuring out a strategy that really um, tackles emissions from each of those sectors that's consistent with our long-term goals. And speaking of those sectors, we've talked a bit about transportation. Uh, power generation obviously is one of the other major ones, or if not, probably the other major one. Uh, what does that look like in, in a couple of decades if we've hit net zero? Sure. So actually, um, we've done a pretty good job in the region in cleaning up our electricity supply through a number of other policies that have been on the books. But what it looks like in a few years is we're powered with offshore wind, solar, um, renewables paired with storage. We're really exhausting energy efficiency so that we're requiring less demand. Our demand is shrinking. And what we are meeting um, is being met with clean uh, supply. The place where there's really a big opportunity to do more is actually in the way we heat and cool our buildings. So the thermal sector, um, that's going to be a tough nut to crack. And one thing that um, success in the thermal sector and buildings will be achieved through um, more stringent standards for building codes, making sure that buildings are as efficient as possible, and then um, transitioning off of fossil fuel heating and replacing that with cleanly powered um, renewable thermal technology, things like a heat pump, a geothermal system, 
So that's and, that, that and, and I mean, that sounds, that it's easy to describe, but that's millions of homes we're talking about, right? I mean, this is a major policy initiative, which will require a lot of investment, a lot of um, uh, sort of a lot of effort to get there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. But I think with anything, um, you know, that's difficult, we just have to uh, take a, a sequenced approach to trying to solve some of these problems. And in the thermal sector, for example, you know, we have a lot of homes that still heat with oil or who heat with electric resistance heat. There are certain um, applications where the new technology makes sense while we slowly get to a place where we can start to replace gas. Uh, speaking of replacing gas, we've heard uh, there was an event this week, which I know you were also in attendance at, where there was some discussion about whether natural gas was a reasonable in interim step to get us to uh, completely clean and renewable energy. It was one of the points, I think, of sharpest disagreement, and it was one where I'm less well-versed in the various sides of it. So I wonder if you'd describe what that dynamic is and what your view on how we get to re renewable energy is. Because we can't just switch it on tomorrow. It's not like we have the capacity. So... We More. don't have the turbine spinning yet, but we have the potential there for significant capacity. Um, I think the main point of disagreement is uh, between those who say, you know what, it's time to draw a line in the sand and stop investing in fossil fuel infrastructure and doing things that perpetuate our addiction to the very thing that's causing us to be sick. And there are those who say... Um, the technology is not there yet. The wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. So until we have that, we need more gas. I fall into the first camp. I feel like it's really the, the science tells us where we need to be. And we um, don't have any more time to waste trying to um, trying to wait for some silver bullet to come along. Uh, so I fall into the camp of we do need to kind of stop investing in fossil fuel infrastructure, and we do need to be looking at ways to accelerate adoption of um, clean alternatives. And the longer we take to do that, the harder it's going to be to do to get to where we need to be. So it, it, the transition to targeting net zero came as a bit of a surprise, I think, to a, maybe it didn't to you, but to some of us who are watching from a bit more of a distance. I didn't know that this was coming from the governor. Uh, I didn't know maybe before a week or two ahead of time that it was coming from the Senate. How long has this actually been in the works? Is this something that's been coming for a while or did this kind of come out of nowhere for the advocate community as well? Well, the advocacy community has been pushing for a net zero by 2050 for, for a while. Um, as I said, the, that target is consistent with um, the IPCC um, reports that came out in the last couple of years. It was consistent with a call to action that the um, United Nations made a year, six months ago, I guess. Um, but uh, as the governor indicated in, in his State of the State address and, um, you know, as members of his administration have pointed to, it's obviously something that they have been um, considering internally. They are in the process of developing, actually before this was announced, they were in the process of developing um, what's called an 80 by 50 study. So looking at how Massachusetts can get to its climate goals. Uh, they've had to adjust that, or I'm assuming they're going to have to adjust it to be a roadmap to net zero by 2050. Um, but they've, you know, it's it was not 
surprising that we need to be there. It was a welcome announcement um, when the governor indicated that that's the commitment that the state's making, and it was also welcome to hear both chambers of the legislature um, concur. And we've seen the Senate, of course, pass several bills already, many parts of which are geared toward getting us there, but the House doesn't have anything that I'm aware of that's specific to that. Do we anticipate a bill coming out of the House anytime soon that would point us in that direction? So there was a bill filed by um, Representative Machino. Uh, It was filed at the beginning of the session. It's sometimes referred to as the roadmap bill. It's currently in House Ways and Means, and it would actually, one of the things that it would do um, is set this net zero uh, by 2050 target. Um, I think the importance of the target is it orients state policy and program implementation in the near term to make sure that we're actually moving at the pace that we need to be to hit our long-term goals. So um, it was exciting to see the Senate pass the three-bill package that they released last week. Um, It will be really interesting to see uh, how the House responds, and hopefully um, that will include uh, seeing the Machino bill um, move to the floor for a vote. All right. Uh, Eugenia Gibbons, Policy Director for the Green Energy Consumers Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Steve. Okay, and that brings us to our favorite special trivia segment of the week, which is Who Said It? Uh, So last week it was, quote, As I told the reporter, I'm absolutely not running for president. Any report otherwise is or categorically false. I've been proud to campaign with my good friend Joe Biden, who's going to win the nomination, beat Trump, and make an outstanding president. Stephanie, who said that? That was no other than John Kerry, former senator, former secretary of state, using the F word on Twitter. (laughs) Using the F word on Twitter, which he then deleted and said just categorically. But I just love the the idea that those two are somehow implied to be synonyms. (laughs) (laughs) So the quote this week has both a Massachusetts and a New Hampshire connection, and here it is. Quote, I love Concord. Oh, Concord. You know how famous Concord is. Concord. That's the same Concord we read about all the time, right? Concord. I love Concord. Close quote. Give us who said that, and for 10,000 extra trivia points, what on earth were they talking about? So if you know the answer, feel free to tweet it at us, email us. But in the meantime, it's time for us to go. So if you like the horse race, don't forget to rate it on iTunes, subscribe to the pod. In the meantime, I'm Stephanie Murray, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook. And I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. Our producer, as always, is the great Libby Gormley. And thank you all for listening.